Uh, let's start with prayer. I just welcome all of you, and I hope that this will be a time of uh, light and some insight into the doldrums of prayer. You know, so often uh, I think in our country, prayer seems dry as toast. Not always, but sometimes it does. And uh, for Christ, it was his life. It was his link to his Father. Um, if Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God and lived perfectly in flesh, prayed the way he prayed, sometimes all night, um, who declared his father's house to be a house of prayer, turned over the money changers' tables because of that. And then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19 that do you not know that your body, that you are the temple of God in whom dwells the Holy Spirit? And so if we now are the house of the Father, if we house the Father and the Son both, how much more are we to be a house of prayer? So let's pray. Father, I pray that you take this time and that you infuse it with your spirit. And that your spirit would awaken something deep in us as to the possibilities of prayer, the requirements of prayer, the demands of prayer, and the power of prayer. And I ask that you would awaken a hunger in us to know you more deeply, to experience you more profoundly, and to enter into that kind of intimate relationship with you through prayer. Uh, infuse this and charge it uh, with your truth and your light today, Father. And, and change something in us today in how we see you and how we see prayer. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Um, what I want to do is uh, set the stage in Ephesians 6. And Ephesians 6 will be... Um, uh, will frame uh, how we uh, look at things today and uh, how we begin more and more to understand prayer. So we'll be referring back to Ephesians 6 uh, several times uh, in this uh, study this morning. I'll try to take a break at about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And um, this is going to be more of a teaching time. Uh, I invite you all to consider coming on... Um, I think it's the second Saturday uh, of uh, each month uh, for a prayer offering here. Next month will be a meditation on the Word. And I'll just give you some guidance, so about 30 minutes on doing that, and then give you the rest of the time to just use the Word to bring yourself into His presence. Then in October, I think it's October 13th, uh, I'll be doing a brown bag chapel retreat. Uh, in which I'm going to go into uh, the tabernacle, um, kind of in depth, into the tabernacle as a picture of prayer. 
uh, and as a, in understanding the tabernacle as a picture of prayer, how to still our own voices. And so essentially, it's not just a study on the tabernacle. What it really is about is a prayer of what I call communion, where we learn how more and more to enter into his presence. Uh, today, on intercession, this is not prayer 101. This is where I, I am expecting that uh, that you've come here knowing something about intercession, but not nearly enough. And no matter how, the more I pray, the more mysterious prayer becomes. So the more I know I'm in mystery when I'm praying, and, and, and the less I understand of it sometimes, uh, even though the more I understand. Um, but intercession is this power punch in the spiritual realm of God's kingdom against Satan's realm. And um, the key to, one of the keys to empowered prayer is learning how to be in communion with him. So this prayer, brown bag prayer retreat that's coming up in October is a, is a teaching in how to enter into his presence and, and stilling your own voices so you can better hear from him. Because if I'm not hearing from him about what I'm praying for in intercession, my intercession will be without power. So that one is key to really unleashing uh, a deeper level of um, intercessory power uh, in prayer. If I'm praying my own will, that's not intercession. Uh, that's empathy or sympathy. But if I'm intensely praying for God's will in someone's life, that's intercession. Uh, sometimes we will know his will, sometimes we won't know his will. Uh, but there are ways to pray in intercession even when we are clueless. So uh, Ephesians 6 sets the stage here uh, for us. Verse 10, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Focuses on him, the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the attacks and the wiles, the craftiness of the devil. For we wrestle, this is the key, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now that's King James Version. But what he's doing here is he's setting the stage and he's framing the context of our lives here on earth. And he is saying the enemy is spiritual. The bad marriage is not the real issue. The difficult relationship is not the real issue. The real enemy against which we wrestle is a spiritual realm. You know, we are spirit beings embodied. We are spirit beings. Once we accepted Christ as our Savior, we became spirit beings, John 3. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We are just embodied spirit beings. But the greater reality of our physical life here is an unseen spiritual realm. And he, Paul is setting the stage here. He's, he's helping the Ephesians to understand what they're really wrestling against. 
See, Ephesus was the epicenter of cult uh, pagan worship. Uh, the temple to the goddess either Diana was there in Ephesus. And uh, as well as in Corinth. It was one in Corinth. But in Ephesus, you have a city of 500,000 people and half of them converted to Christianity in the first century. And they didn't have a building, they had homes. And so there was this great, in, in fact, it left the temple pretty desolate, the temple to Artemis or to Diana. It was empty because there were so many Christian converts. But you understand there that that also was a center of the spiritual dominions of a, 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 a spiritual satanic demonic agents because um, the, the Greek mythology was part of this worship here and, and uh, they had a thousand prostitutes that participated in the worship to this goddess uh, Diana. So this is the, the arena in which he is addressing them and he's saying, we're not wrestling here against the flesh and blood. We're not wrestling here against the Romans who are seeking to kill you. The real enemy is spiritual. Now he identifies this enemy in greater context. We wrestle against rulers spiritual rulers, against kingdoms, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He is saying that the spiritual realm is not just a benign negative. It's not even a malignant neg negative. It has agents in it that come against us as believers. And that that is the the real enemy, and we have to have spiritual tools to deal with spiritual wickedness and spiritual reality. So here in Ephesians 6, he is setting, number one, the spiritual reality. He is declaring the spiritual warfare and identifying the spiritual warfare. And now he's getting ready to give us the spiritual weapons for fighting, doing this battle. Therefore, verse 13 Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil. Having done all, stand. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. So the first thing we put on is truth. So that wherever you and I are bound up, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, it is because we are believing something to be true that is not true. If a, uh, John 8, 31 and 32 is true, that you know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And the word there means a deep heart knowing. Head knowledge will not set us free. It will only identify our bondage <laughs> and make us aware of our bondage. Heart knowledge is what frees us. So I could say, yeah, I know that's true, but. Well, I'm not free. If I know that's true, but, I'm not free because I don't know it in my heart. My heart doesn't buy into it yet. So you put those two together, the Ephesians scripture I just read and the John 8, 31 and 32 together, and that's why I say wherever I am knotted up, uh, spiritually, uh, relationally, um, 
emotionally, psychologically, it is because I'm believing a lie. I'm buying into and believing as true something that isn't. So that's the first thing we put on. Then you have the breastplate of righteousness, which is a gift from God through faith. He has covered our vital organs with his righteousness, not ours. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, we have to be active in being in his word and being prepared to walk the dusty places of this earth. Studying his word and being prepared in the gospel prepares us to walk effectively here. Verse 15, uh, 16, above all, take the shield of faith by which you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now the idea that he has here is of warfare that, occur, that, that was prevalent at that time in the Roman Empire. You had two kinds of sword, uh, shields that the Roman soldiers used. One was a kind of a rounded shield that fit over the arm and it was for hand-to-hand -hand combat to deflect the blows. The other one was a full body shield. And that was more in uh, long distance warfare where the opposing army would light their arrows, torch their arrows, and fire these fiery arrows uh, in mass at the oncoming uh, army. And to protect themselves from that, they would step behind their full body shield. And the shield that he's talking about here is the full body shield. The one that was for hand-to-hand -hand combat, you could pretty easily get wounded with that shield if you didn't deflect it. And uh, I think that, yeah, there we go. If you didn't, if you didn't, if you weren't quick on your feet and if you weren't quick on your reflexes. But the shield that he's talking about here is that when Satan hurls these fiery arrows at us, uh, trying to uh, uh, inflict a deadly blow, faith is our full body shield. And that's why Jesus kept saying, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has done this, your faith has done that. Faith is that full body shield that will begin to protect us against the deception of Satan and the lies of Satan and the fear that Satan will instill in us, the anxieties that he will put up to us. Um, so above all, he says, take that full body shield of faith by which you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects another vital portion, and salvation is his gift by faith. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the only offensive weapon, is God's word. It prepares our feet, and it allows for us to come against him with God's word. And that's why you see Christ in the wilderness responding to Satan's temptations by the word of God. It is written, he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It is written, men shall not live by bread alone. He used the word. Instead, what we do is we use our own words <laughs> and wonder why we're not very effective in resisting the temptations and the difficulties that are posed before us by living here on this planet. Now, verse 18 gets to prayer. 
It says, pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watch with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Prayer doesn't necessarily seem to be a piece of the armor here. It seems rather to be sort of an encompassing shield that just covers the whole package. Uh, he doesn't mention it as a piece of armor. He just says, pray without ceasing. It's sort of an invisible shield. Um, praying in the spirit, as opposed to with our mind that we see in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 says, so then we pray with our mind and with our understanding. We also pray with the spirit or in the spirit. Now, that in 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about praying in uh, an unknown tongue, glossolalia. Um, that's not necessarily what he's talking about here. Uh, he's talking about praying in the Spirit, and it's available to everyone. So, um, Part of our praying in the spirit and intercession is coming into alignment with what God's will is and learning how to hear him. Um, now, I could go into a whole lesson on that, and I'm not going to, but I want to frame where we're at here. So what we're looking at here when prayer enters the scene is that it enters the scene. It is the spiritual language of physical man. Prayer is... Physical man's way of invading the spirit realm with God's kingdom turf. Invading the spirit realm with God's will. Securing footing. God, giving God footing here on earth to do his battle. So prayer is sort of like a shunt through which God, through his human agents, establishes his kingdom turf here and does his battles. You know, earth swung away from God in Eden by man's free will choice. And what has been swung away from God by man's free will choice has to be swung back to God by our free will choices. And so he is seeking his people here on earth who have his spirit in them to be that responding agent in prayer by which he can establish and get his, his footing here his toehold here again in a battle that's raging. And that's what prayer does. If we, if we engage in prayer according to his auspices and according to his will. So in understanding that prayer is the spiritual tool that we as physical beings have, we're not physical beings, we're spirit beings, but we are clothed and costumed in the physical. You know, before we were Christians, uh, John 3 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So when you and I were born, we are born as flesh. With a, deep within us, a spirit. That is the only, it's what I call a relic of Eden. It's what's left of that, that compatibility that man had in Eden with God. And so man's spirit is an eternal spirit but dead, in a sense, until we accept Christ as our Savior. 
and then the eternal Holy Spirit of God, the Father, and the Son both come into my eternal spirit when I'm flesh and bring it alive. Make it eternally holy. And it changes who I am, according to John 3. It makes me now spirit. Not flesh with a spirit, but spirit cloaked in flesh. And prayer, then, is this spiritual instrument that penetrates our physical circumstance and our physical frame of reference and allows God to move and change and do things here on earth that might not otherwise get done. Now, why do I say that? Uh, turn to Ezekiel 22, 30. There is an implication here of that. Uh, in verse 29, he describes what the, the, the children of Israel are doing. The people of the land have used oppression and they have exercised robbery. They have troubled and vexed the poor the need, and the needy. They have oppressed the stranger wrongfully, Ezekiel 22:29. And then God is speaking here. In that context of a messed up people, a people who were behaving not just poorly, but in, in almost a pagan-like way, he said, I sought for someone among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it or bring punishment upon it. But I found none. Therefore has my arm brought judgment. Therefore have I poured out my own indignation upon them. My wrath has come upon them. He did not want his wrath to come upon him, but he needed someone to come and stand in the gap. And what was the gap? The gap was their defiance, their rebellion, their willful disobedience. It created a separation, a gap between them and their God. And he needed some righteous person to come and stand in the gap, not just a prayer warrior. Okay? It, it's, it doesn't mean that there wasn't anyone in Israel who was not praying but it means that there was no one who was willing to pray and, and, and follow God's leading sacrificially. Now, what is this someone who comes and stand in, stands in the gap called? Isaiah 59, 16 gives us that, that evidence. Turn two books to your left. Before Jeremiah is Isaiah. Now, notice he was looking for an intercessor. If he had found an intercessor, what would have been the consequence? Pardon me? No, he wouldn't have brought the consequences upon them. That's why I say that prayer is a strategic instrument that may make a difference, but in what happens? God was wanting, judgment consequence was to come to them unless he had someone who would stand in that gap as an intercessor and 
deflect that consequence through prayer. Verse 16 of Isaiah 59. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. In other words, he, uh, he let the people suffer consequences again. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I don't think it, it means that there wasn't anyone praying. I mean, like Elijah in First Kings 18 said, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. And the Lord just reminded him that, well, I have, I have 7,000 who have not yet bowed their knee. So I, there were prayers, but there wasn't someone. And he was amazed that there was no one to answer the call of intercession. So one who comes and stands in the gap that exists. Okay, what are some of the gaps? We just saw some of them. If you have a loved one or family member who is in rebellion or who is just complacent and just doesn't really mind the things of the Lord, just kind of goes on his or her own way. Um, or maybe someone who is, has addictive issues, addictions. Stronghold issues, and I'm not going to get into strongholds much today because I am going to be teaching on strongholds on Thursday evenings for about six weeks. So I'm not going to get into much to that, but wherever there is a spiritual stronghold, there is a, a let me back up. When we accepted Christ as our Savior, we moved out of the darkness of this world. You know, Christ in John over and over again talks about the prince of the darkness of this world that Satan now has authority, temporary, I mean, the temporary is a long time, <laughs> it's an, until Revelation eleven fifteen. <laughs> but he has temporary authority uh, over this earth. And when you and I accepted Christ as our Savior and his spirit came into us, what else came into us, was his light. Second Corinthians 4 says his light shines out of our darkness, has landed in our heart, paraphrase version, and shines forth from our darkness. What that means is that his kingdom has come, and Christ says in Luke, the kingdom is within you. So God establishes his outpost, his kingdom outpost in every believer. So now we are no longer under the authority of Satan. Now Satan makes a counter run here because this is warfare. This is spiritual warfare. And he will come at you and me to try to reclaim something of us. Now he knows he can't get at our eternal spirit. But he can get at our soul. That part of us that carries the sin nature, that part of us that's willful, that's part of us that has the logic and the reason. That part of us that uh, carries the messages from our life and our perceptions of what has happened to us. Yes. Well, if you if you equate soul and spirit, he can't. 
But what you begin to see, if you look at Hebrews 4.12, is that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and good to divide soul and spirit. So soul and spirit are not exactly the same. He can't get at our spirit. He can't. But our mind, our will, uh, our, our message systems, the things that give us automatic reactions to things, is where I'm saying they, those lodge in the soul. Uh, the personality. Uh, our soul is sort of our personality. And so he can attack and get at certain portions of that re- arena, which is what you're saying is the mind. And I'm saying the mind and the soul are essentially housed in it, it, the same components. And so what he can do is he, can, he tries to reclaim a, tr- a piece of us, our mind, our soul, our message board, in which we cede authority back to him. And we'll cede it by being casual with disobedience. And then one day we realize we're no longer casual with it. It has a hold of us and we, it's controlling me and I'm not controlling it. That's stronghold. And that's where if I, if I get casual long enough, what happens is he takes me up on it because I have by my free will acquiesced to what he wants. And at some point in there, he establishes his authority again in my soul. And that's a stronghold. And that's why we can't bring down the strongholds easily. That's why the things that I don't want to do, I do. And it doesn't matter how much I try, how hard I try, how much I discipline myself. I can't get, I can't break through this. That's a stronghold. And it's where Satan has finally come in and reestablished his authority. Because remember, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers of the darkness of this world. The, the fifth a thing that Ephesians 6 tells us is about spiritual authority. The fourth thing is spiritual rulers. Well, rulers have authority. So in the spiritual realm of demonic agents and satanic power, there are agents of authority. And understanding that helps us to understand how we pray and what prayer does, and how we need to comport ourselves and conduct ourselves in order to have a more effective prayer life. So we have the need then for those people who are out in our family systems or in, not in our family systems, that just come to our awareness that are struggling with relational issues, that are struggling with anger or rage, that are struggling with fears and anxieties and phobias, depression. Um, I mean, you can go on and on and on where they can't get on top of it. It's on top of them. That's where the gaps are. And it can be as a result of a rebellion. It can be as as a result of woundedness and unhealed places from childhood. 
Wherever there is raw tissue from childhood that hasn't been dealt with, the message system in those wounded places will always uh, feed a stronghold because those messages will be based on things that are not true but feel true. So those are the gaps that require an intercessor to make a difference. And I want us to look at a picture here in Mark 2 of, uh, of intercession because what we have here, there are two different aspects of intercession. There's a very active, intensive aspect of intercession and there is a passive aspect of intercession. Both are equally powerful, but they're called for under different circumstances. So there are different um, uh, circumstances that call forth either the intensive active intercession or the passive intercession. And I'm not going to go into a great deal of, information, uh, of uh, time on passive intercession, but I will explain to you what I mean by it and how it looks. And actually, Mark 2 gives us a picture of this. Um, Christ is uh, teaching in Capernaum in verse 1 of Mark 2. And um, in verse 2, a lot of people are gathering around him. He's, he's speaking or, or teaching in a, in a house. And in verse 2, there were so many that gathered around him that there was no room um, to receive anyone else. And P, the word, uh, word got out that he was in this house, actually staying in the house as well as teaching in it. And so it filled up, and um, there was no room to receive anyone, no, not so much as uh, even about the door. He preached the word unto them, and people came unto him, bringing uh, one person who was sick of the palsy. He was born by four people. And when the, so they brought this man who could not walk. They carried him in a gurney, what we would call a gurney, to see Jesus because they felt like Jesus could heal him. And they could not uh, get close to Jesus because of the press of the crowd in verse 4. So they climbed up in a roof, on the roof, and they uncovered the roof. So you think probably this is a thatched roof of some sort. They took all of that off. And then they broke up the roof. I'm sure the owner of the house was very grateful for that. <laughs> so intercession can get in the way of other people's comfort, let me tell you. So <laughs> um, but they broke up, they, they, they knocked a hole in the roof. And they, big enough to lower this man on this stretcher, this gurney, down, and they had to figure out how to lower him down into it. So they had to get some sort of rope of some sort, maybe in fabric, to lower him down to the feet of Jesus. And um, they laid him there at the feet of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, 
He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And there were certain of the scribes sitting there reasoning in their heart, Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said, Why do you reason these things? It is easier to say to the sick that your sins are forgiven or to say, Arise and take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say unto you, Arise and take up your bed and go your way unto your house. And the man did. Now, that's a picture these four friends who wanted to get their sick friend who could not walk to Jesus, they did whatever they had to do to get him to the feet of Jesus. That is a picture of this intensive portion of intercession. They took it upon themselves to be the answer. One of the characteristics of an intercessor is one is willing to, for the answer to their prayers to come through them. Not just to pray in the prayer closet, but to be an instrument through which God may move physically to have needs met that you're praying for. And that's what they did. They took him. It was not an easy thing to, for them to carry him. They carried him all the way to this house, however far that was, and they wouldn't let the obstacles keep them from the answer. They wouldn't let the hindrances keep them from Jesus. So they couldn't get into the house because people were pouring out of the door, trying to hear what Jesus had to say, trying to be near Jesus. Well, they could have said, we tried. The nature of intercession is that you don't give up until the answer comes. We read earlier in Ephesians 6, having done all, therefore stand. When you've done everything you can do, you don't sit. You don't go away. You stand and watch. You stand waiting to be nudged from the Lord to do something else. When you've done everything you know to do, you stand ready. So there was their dilemma. They couldn't get him into Jesus. So what could they do? Well, they found, they thought outside the box. They thought outside the house. <laughs> and through the roof. They climbed up. They had to figure out how to get up on the house. They had to figure out how to get him up on the house. They had to figure out how to get the thatch or whatever it was that covered the actual uh, sturdy part of the roof. And then they had to figure out how to get through that. They had to get some sort of instruments to do that, to break it up, some sort of hammer or something. And if it's too cold in here, uh, we can turn that uh, temperature up. Uh, I love it. Teresa, can you? I turned it down to 73, and 74 I think is about right. I turned it down when we turned the fans off. When we turned the fans on, I forgot to turn it back. And then just press hold, and it'll, it'll go back up. Thank you. That is intensive. That's a picture of intensive intercession. 
it depends upon, in some circumstances, yes. I mean, I, you can certainly pray for yourself and for your needs. But what usually happens is there are so many things going on that we feel so weighted down by things. Whenever there's a gap, now, yes, I can pray for my needs. I sure can. But whenever there's a gap, and that gap may be something in me is crippled, and, and I can't do the things I'm used to doing. Maybe I'm crippled by grief. Maybe I'm crippled by hurt, by discouragement, um, by physical problems. So wherever there's a gap, no, I can't. But I may be in real prayer uh, vigilance and warfare uh, about issues of my life. I may, but where there is a gap of energy, a gap of ability, a gap to just uh, be connected with God uh, in prayer, that's where I need someone else to come and pray for me. Uh, Moses on the mountaintop is a picture of that in Exodus.